I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew and especially we have slowed down on these, especially these uh, verses 13 through 20 for a few weeks now and it is for good reason. We've been going along in the Gospel of Matthew and as you're reading, you're learning about Jesus, who he is, his character, his teaching, his power as the Son of God. We come now to Matthew 16 where there's this section where Jesus, after hearing the confession of Peter on behalf of the apostles that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, Jesus gives very specific instructions and really blessings to Peter and the apostles. And they are pivotal for our understanding of the New Testament church. So we're slowing down here also because there's been much misunderstanding and misteaching on these verses. So we come now this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Again, I'll begin reading in verse 13. I'll read through verse 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you this morning and asking you again to help us to understand accurately the words of your Son, our Lord Jesus. The implications are massive for the church. And so we pray for a right understanding, not only with our minds, but that we would submit with all our heart to what you desire. May your church, may this church, by your grace, be as accurate an expression of the kingdom of heaven as it possibly can be. Help us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in New England and New Hampshire, we have all over the landscape various church buildings and meeting houses. New England is in part known for this. It's foliage, but also it's town centers with various churches, some brick, mostly white steeples. There's many meeting houses. You can drive just about anywhere through the country, through towns, and you'll see not one, but two Clearly, for hundreds of years, the worship of God has been of some kind of privilege to the history of the people in this region. And However, at the same time, we understand that now in 2020, we can drive around and and see flags 
waving from the front steps of the church building, representing that which the scriptures say is an abomination to God. Anything but recognizing God and honoring Him and Jesus as Lord, in in essence, houses of worship passing to be off to be Christian who are boldly, openly anti-Christ, anti-Christian. More than those overt references or examples of clear anti-Christ tendencies in these once historic meeting houses, we're also perhaps aware that there are many Churches, many evangelical churches, professing faith in God, professing faith in the gospel. We understand that. Many of these places are, have become over years full of men and women who evidence little love for God, little love for Christ, whose attitude is, is anything but Christ-like. Leaders who, who evidence character that's far from the qualifications that Christ gave to his church. How did we get here? How does that happen? To such an extent, to such a degree? Well, there's different answers. One of them is found in our passage in verse 18, the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. That, of course, is not a reference to physical gates of hell or physical gates of Hades. But the gates in ancient times were the place where the powerful men and the judges of the city or the kingdom assembled to wage war, to march out, and so forth. So the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, are representative of Satan and his minions, the dominion of darkness, the powers of darkness. And he is powerful. He is a deceiver. And he hates Christ. He hates Christ's people. He is set in absolute committed opposition to the building of the church by Jesus. And so one of the tactics of Satan is to so fill the land with false churches that it becomes very hard for a sinner to find a church where there is true reverence for God, true teaching of the Bible, and where they can hear the gospel, the only gospel that saves. He's been very effective. It's actually very hard to find a biblical church these days. But another answer is not only Satan and not only his tactics, but another answer as to why we find ourselves where we are, the land full of churches that, as I said, wave rainbow flags, flags that are an abomination to God, churches full of unconverted men and women, even unconverted leaders, corruption and greed and all kinds of things that are displeasing to God. Another answer for how we get to this place is poor stewardship. Poor stewardship of the keys to the kingdom. This is so important for us to understand this morning, this passage. It's, it is difficult, as we've already noted last Sunday, in part because we're living with 2,000 years of Christian church history And in our day, we have the dominant, large, worldwide Roman Catholic Church, which has a very particular understanding of this passage and these words in particular about the keys. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter was the first pope and that every successor of Peter is a new pope 
and that the Pope alone holds the keys to the kingdom and the other apostles are bishops. Um, you'll note that you don't really see anything about that in here. Do you, do you see that? Just draw your attention. Do you see anything there about that? No. You will not find it in the rest of the New Testament either. It is man-made. It is contrived by men. And that is why the Roman Catholic Church, in its own catechism, holds up the Word of God and the tradition, man-made tradition of the church, on equal authority. Problem. And so we are challenged to study this passage and its implications for us for a number of reasons. One of them being that it's been so poorly um, it's abused. It's been so uh, rather horribly abused to assert a kind of authority in one man in Rome that he does not have by way of Christ. I want to review just quickly with you that in this passage, Jesus has been ministering now for just about two and a half years. He has been largely rejected by the leaders of spiritual leaders of Israel. He's been largely rejected by the people, even though they're flocking, thronging to, to gather to hear him teach and to receive healing. They do not want to acknowledge the obvious, which is this Jesus from Nazareth is giving evidence that he is the foretold, the promised, prophesied king of Israel, the Messiah, Messiah, the Hebrew word for anointed one. And Christ, as we've learned, is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. They had, Jesus has been ministering. No one is confessing him as the Christ in spite of the obvious fact that he is. And so Jesus pulls aside out of Israel. Notice in verse 13, he's in the district of Caesarea Philippi, a largely Gentile area. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? As an aside, the Son of Man cherished that title for Jesus as well. It, it's a, he loved it. He used it perhaps more than any other title to refer to himself. And it's taken from the prophecy of Daniel where Daniel saw the vision of God most high, lofty and exalted, and one like the Son of Man approached the throne. This is a messianic prophecy of the Son of Man, who is the Messiah. Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am, essentially? And they give various answers, but then Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, the twelve, says... Verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we examined a few weeks ago the significance of what that confession means, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One whom the whole Old Testament was pointing to, prophesying, promising. He is the Christ, and He is Son of the living God, he has a unique relationship to God as God's only begotten Son. And upon hearing this confession, Jesus speaks to Peter. And the rest of the disciples are there. Peter is the leader of the disciples. And yet, it, as we noted last Sunday, it's undeniable that Jesus does speak to Peter personally, even in the presence of the other men. He speaks to him, uh, you in the singular, you, Peter, 
you are Peter. Peter means rock. And he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We saw together that, first of all, the church is Christ's church. And we'll see that more this morning. Jesus asserts that the church is his church, but that this confessing man, this confessing Peter, both the confession and the man, is a pivotal stone in the foundation upon which Christ will build his church. And we look together at the book of Acts, and the book of Acts just plays that out. Who was it that preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost when the church was born? Peter. Christ and God in his sovereignty used the public preaching and confession of Peter and the apostles with him as the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 saying that Christ himself is the cornerstone. Jesus goes on to speak to Peter, though, directly. Peter is blessed in a unique way. He's honored by Christ and by the Father because among the the disciples and who will be apostles, Peter will be the leader. He will be the one who's to appoint men. We'll see that more this morning. He was a sinful man. He was a he was a confused man at times. He, he could be so bold and then he could be so cowardly. He could be so right and then we're going to learn here in chapter 16, he could be so wrong. And yet to this sinful man who sees the truth about Jesus and is willing to speak up boldly, God gives a unique blessing. He's given a privilege. He's honored by God. And that privilege in verse 19, he says, I will give you. And again, the you there is not in the plural, it's the singular. He is talking to Peter. And and many commentators, evangelical commentators, and I agree with this, emphasize that though he's speaking to Peter, that Peter is again with the group and he is with the apostles, the, the authority of the early church, which is true, and we'll see that this morning. But there is no escaping that there is a personal reference here to Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Well, we have some questions, don't we? How does Peter, what are these keys of the kingdom? What does Jesus mean? And why does he say that he's given them to Peter? And by extension to the apostles. Well, first this morning, let's consider this question. What are these keys to the kingdom? Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. There's four things I want to point out, observations I want to make here. So again, last week we, we saw as a basic principle of Bible study, when you have a question, you move from what is more clear what is maybe obvious, to what is less clear. So first of all, I want you to notice, as we examine the question of what does Jesus mean by the keys of the kingdom? What is he talking about? A few observations that I think will help us. First, the church that Jesus is building is the kingdom of heaven. It is the new covenant or New Testament expression of, of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has just said he will build his church, and then he says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So I just want you to notice by way of observation, we are still talking about the church. 
Jesus, when he says the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about something separate from the church that he's just spoken of in verse 18. Jesus has said, I will build my church. And then in verse 19, he's still talking about the church, which is in the New Testament times, New Covenant times, the church of Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth. If you were in Old Covenant, Old Testament times, it was the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, who were the visible expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth. But now with the New Covenant, New Testament, God has not forsaken Israel. We will see that in the New Testament as well. But in the New Covenant, God is saving Jew and Gentile and comprising together Jew and Gentile his church, his assembly, his called out ones. So I just want you to notice that. When we talk about verse 19, when Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is, is synonymous there with the church, virtually synonymous. The church is the New Testament expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Secondly, notice, as we consider this question, or we were studying what does Jesus mean What's the significance of the keys of the kingdom? Notice, secondly, Jesus is not giving the kingdom of heaven to Peter. He's giving the keys to the kingdom. Big difference. Big difference. He's not giving the kingdom to Peter and the other apostles, it's his kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of Christ. He's giving the keys. And we must remember that as we come, we'll come to application towards the end. Another reason why there are so many supposedly Christian churches which have more in common with the gates of hell than the kingdom of heaven is because men and women, church leaders and church members, have mistakenly forgotten that they don't own the kingdom. The kingdom's not theirs. They don't get to decide the rules of the kingdom. They don't get to determine the boundaries of the kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's not my kingdom. It is the kingdom of our God and Christ, period. We are brought into the kingdom as citizens, and by God's grace, those who are believers in Jesus Christ one day will reign with Him. But the kingdom itself is not ours properly. We receive it as grace, as gift. We enjoy it. We participate in it. But there is one God and one King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's important. He's giving the keys. The keys. Thirdly, then, the keys speak of access or admittance. Right? That's what keys do. They give you access. This morning on the way in, uh, I, I did some going here and there yesterday, some errands and so forth, and I have my church set of keys for some of the offices here on a separate key than the one I had for the car I was driving this morning, and I thought, oh no, I'm not going to be able to get into the office where the printer is or my office, and so I called Carissa and said, you know, in my black coat, there's the other set of keys, could you bring those in? And she did. What do keys do? Why? Because I needed to gain accents. I needed to gain admittance. And that keychain also has the key to the 
freezing cold ladies' bathroom out in the hallway, which I'm sure everyone loves. It's ice cold. It's like an ice box. Sorry about that. Um, and I only know because I have to unlock it and the cold air comes out. Um, but, you know, we have some rooms here that are cold. But the point is, we get it. Keys give access. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, fourthly, we can observe Keys speak of stewardship. Stewardship. The steward is under orders from the king. The steward is given the privilege of exercising a delegated authority on behalf of the king to open or shut the door to the house and the gates of the kingdom. It is the steward who is given the privilege and authority on behalf of the king to open the door to those who wish to come in and to shut the door to others who have no right to come in. It's a great responsibility. Jesus is giving to Peter and to the apostles, and by extension we'll see to the church, the true church, the privilege of exercising authority on behalf of the king to open or shut the door to the gates of the kingdom. It's God's kingdom, it's Christ's kingdom. But Peter is given, along with the apostles, the authority to admit or deny access to the visible church, to the visible kingdom. Of course, we know in the last day, there is no one who's going to enter into the eternal kingdom who is not truly born again and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if someone, one of the apostles or someone else made a mistake and let someone who's not truly born again into the visible church. It doesn't matter. There's not going to be anyone in the eternal kingdom who is not truly born of God. But until that time... In this time, we have the responsibility and the privilege of considering carefully who gains admittance into the visible church, the kingdom of heaven. It's crucial. As I said to you at the beginning, how do we get to this place where we have so many churches that are so far from representing the kingdom of heaven? And too many churches that are full of church members who evidence little or no saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Answer, poor stewardship. Failure to recognize the stewardship entrusted by Christ to the church. But I'm getting ahead of myself because the next question we need to admit, we need to ask is, well, what is Peter's role? So we've Ask the question, what are the keys? What does Jesus mean by the keys? And I hope I've helped you a little bit. Think of the keys to the kingdom, not an actual physical set of keys that Jesus gives to Peter and the apostles, but rather the keys as the authority, delegated authority, to admit or to reject or even to remove from the visible church the kingdom of heaven, this church that Christ says he's building. 
That's what Jesus means by the keys. But we do need to ask the question, well, what does Jesus mean by giving the keys to Peter? Is Rome right? Is the Roman Catholic Church right that Peter alone had the authority and the rest of the apostles, you know, bishops or something? Well, as we said, there's nothing in here about the system that's set up by Rome. There's nothing even close to it. But nonetheless, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he does say to Peter, verse 19, I will give you the kings of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. How do we understand this? It's most helpful to just keep reading. That happens a lot in your Bible, too. When you have a question, you're scratching your head. I mean, first it's good to go back and read a little bit of background. But just keep reading. Just keep reading. And often, if you keep reading, you'll pick up on an answer to your question, if you can remember your question. Well, if we've been reading our Bibles, maybe you've read the book of Acts, and I just want to look at a few passages with you that illustrate what Jesus means. Keep your finger or your bulletin or your bookmark in Acts, uh, Matthew 16. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We cannot deny, by God's grace, Peter's unique and significant role in the building of the, local, of the, of the early church. You read the book of Acts, you find in the opening chapter the apostles meeting with a small group of disciples, it's Peter who stands up and says uh, that one of that uh, Judas needs to be replaced. It's Peter who gets up and preaches on the day of Pentecost, the gospel that God uses so powerfully to save souls and add some 3,000 new members to the church. Peter is used in a unique way. He's not alone. He's with the other apostles. But in God's sovereign plan, he did choose to use this man in a unique way. And Jesus has said, had said that he gave to Peter this keys to the kingdom. And I think there's an illustration of it here in chapter 5. The church is growing. There are thousands of men and women professing faith in Christ, being baptized, being added to the church. The Spirit is moving. And there's a great overwhelming joy. And there is wonder at what God has done and suddenly men and women saved from sin and death and hell and and seeing the joy of the kingdom they're, they're, they want to support the church they want to do what they can to support the preaching of the gospel of the Christ they want to support the caring of those who are in the church and, and so they're starting to even sell some of the verse chapter 4 verse 37 they're even starting to sell some of their land and they're bringing them money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Why the apostles? Because the apostles are the authority in the early church. And, and they're bringing it to the apostles, not so the apostles can use it for their car or, or a new camel. They're using it for the building up of the church, the practical needs of the building up of the church. And, and everyone's excited. It's, 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 there's a lot going on. This is, this is wonderful. This is, this is amazing what God is doing. Well, when that happens, there are, there are sometimes men and women who, unknown to perhaps anyone else, 
initially are carnal and they see an opportunity. They see everyone excited about the building up of the church and, and, and this is wonderful and, and they, they maybe don't scheme, but they, they assume, well, I want to join this. I'm ex- this, this, this thing looks like it's going pretty well. I, I think I want to I wanna be a part of this. And they assume one way or the other that they can enter into the kingdom, by, into the church, by other than repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I neglected to just point out the obvious. If there's keys to the kingdom, the kingdom has boundaries. Are we agreed? If there's keys to the kingdom, there's inside, there's outside. Are we agreed? There's in, there's out. There's accepted, there's not accepted. That's what the keys speak of. And so Ananias and Sapphira here, we're told, verse 1, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. This is what's going on. People are getting excited. They sell their property. They're giving it to the church. But, verse 2, they sold the property and kept back some of the price for himself, Ananias did, with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what you need to understand here, what's assumed but you may not pick up on, is that Ananias is passing off as though he's just like this Joseph up in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 4. That Joseph sold everything, he, the land he had, gave it all to the church. Ananias is coming in, he sold a tract of land, and he's passing himself off as also giving all of the proceeds to the church. He's purchasing esteem, access, admittance to the church, in essence. So he brings a portion of it, lays it at the apostles' feet. Seems great. But, verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did, you not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came over all those who heard it. Wow. Then his wife comes in and the same thing happens. Why, why is this little episode told? Jesus is building his church. And he welcomes sinners of all kinds who repent and place their faith in him. In fact, as I've said to you frequently, if you're not a sinner, you can't be in the church. That's God saves sinners. And the first step of, of coming to faith in, in Christ is to acknowledge that apart from God's grace, you, you're a sinner. And not just a, a little sinner, that, that in God's sight you are unholy, unclean. We're all sinners. And yet, Christ said he'll build his church, and Christ builds his church with repentant, sincere sinners 
who place their faith in Him. It's His church. And He will not be impressed with anyone who wants to enter His church any other way than through the humility of repentance from sin and faith in Him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Me. The church, as it is the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, is defined clearly. And admittance and entrance to the kingdom, the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Period. No other way. This is a crucial moment. Is the church of Christ going to be bought? Is there going to be ways to get access? In other words, in good standing with the church? Oh, it's, I tell you, it is incredible what proud, sinful men and women will do to gain admittance into the church of Christ any other way than by humbling themselves, acknowledging their sin, placing their faith in Jesus Christ. They'll do anything, just about. Roman Catholic Church is evidence of that, but in churches like ours, there can be plenty of evidence of that. People want to suggest that merely just serving and helping out is a way to gain access to the church. Oh, oh are we thankful for those who might serve and might help? And, and, and we have certainly received some generous assistance from those who do not claim to know Christ. We thank them sincerely. But one of the angst that I feel in these days is we do not want to give any impression that by somehow giving an amount of money or giving an amount of service or doing something for the church gains you admittance into the household of God. It does not. It does not. Ananias thought, oh, I can, I can make a big whopper of a gift. And surely everyone will think that I am I'm spiritual and sincere. And God uses Peter by his spirit to discern the deceit in Ananias and Sapphira's heart. It was a gift. It was a unique role. And as leader of the apostles at that time, basically what Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira that kind of deceit and deception and corruption and hypocrisy is going to be let in Christ's church over your dead body. Literally. In other words, it's not happening. It's not happening. This church, Jesus said, is my church. It is the house of the Lord. And as we saw in Psalm 5, the Lord does not dwell with evil. He does not dwell with open, blatant hypocrisy. He will not countenance flagrant, gross, arrogant, walking in disobedience. Of course, those who profess faith in Christ continue to fight with sin, continue to struggle. They confess their sins daily. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone like Ananias and Sapphira. Brazen, knowing what you're doing, yeah, I'll 
say Jesus Christ is Lord with my mouth, but you, they, he had no intention of walking in humility. It was a lesson, and everyone had fear. You see, Peter, here's the key, was exercising the keys of the kingdom. Now, not everyone, thankfully, that is, that is not admitted to the visible church drops dead. But it was a sobering lesson in the earliest days of the church that this church is the church that Christ is building for his glory and for his name. Peter was also used in Acts chapter 11. I want you to turn there with me for a moment. Acts chapter 11. Actually, let's begin in chapter 10, verse 47. We're just examining for a few moments the unique role of Peter. There's other passages we could go to, but so we see Peter exercising the keys to the kingdom there in Acts 5. And even for a large sum of money, not opening the door to Ananias and Sapphira. So I, I can't move on by just noting it is to the shame of the church. There are too many professing Christian churches and universities. You know what they would have done with Ananias and Sapphira, even if they knew that they were being a little deceitful? Oh, thank you so much. We'll put a plaque up. Valuing and wanting to please men more than Christ. In Acts chapter 10, at this juncture, remember in church, in in history, in redemptive history, God has been working with the people of Israel, the Jews primarily. There have been Gentiles who have been coming in to the kingdom here and there. But God has been primarily working with the Jews. And now the gospel is going to the Gentiles, which is what God promised would happen all along. But the challenge is that the Jews have very clear markers of faith in God. Of course, circumcision, how they dress, certain dietary laws and so forth, right? It's very clear who is a Jew, God-fearing Jew, and who is not. But the gospel now is going out to Gentiles, to men and women who are not Jews, don't dress like Jews, don't eat like Jews. And the question is, well, by faith in Jesus Christ, can they come in the church too? And this is a, this is a big part of the tension in the early church because the Jews who have been uh, steeped in the Old Testament covenants, they, they have still in them this idea and in part, it's, it's understandable that, that no, if you love God, if you want to be part of his kingdom, it means that you're going to have your sons circumcised. You're going to dress in a certain way. You're going to stop eating foods of certain kinds. And these are the ways in which you're going to enter into the kingdom by basically becoming like a Jew. But here in Acts chapter 10, God uses Peter to give a very important lesson that now in the church in the new covenant church what have we said access to the church is by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone not how you dress not what you eat not this dietary laws of the old covenant so in chapter uh, 10 uh, peter has been told to come to the household of a, a gentile named cornelius He's a God-fearing man, but he's not a Jew. And 
And he goes, and there's a, there's a group of people there. They're Gentiles. They have faith in God, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them just as he came upon the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter, after he witnesses this, he says, surely, verse 47, no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? I'll just pause there. By being baptized in Acts chapter 2, when the people on the day of Pentecost heard the gospel, were baptized, the next verse says, and there were added to the church. There were added about 3,000 souls that day. Baptism at that time was the visible symbol of being added to the church, and in fact, it still is. But they were baptized. So these Gentiles, Peter says, he basically says, you know what? I have the key into the kingdom, into the visible church. I'm going to open the door for these Gentile believers because they have faith in Jesus Christ. And he ordered them, verse 48, see the authority there? He ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, this word gets back to Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 11, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. But there were those, verse 2, who took issue with Peter, saying, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. In other words, hey, Peter, you're changing the rules of the entrance to the kingdom. But Peter explains what took place, the vision that God gave him, the evidence of these Gentiles, their Gentiles, their faith. And so, once he explains this, the apostles and the congregation there in Jerusalem. Well, look what Peter says, sorry, down in verse 17 of chapter 11. Therefore, this is Peter speaking, if God gave to them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us, the Jews, after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that could stand in God's way? Peter knows he's a steward. He doesn't, it's not his kingdom. He doesn't set the rules for admittance, but he does exercise the keys. And he's saying, these men and women, though Gentiles, they do not dress like us, they don't eat like us, but they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, how could I possibly not take the key, open the door, and grant them access? And so verse 18, when they heard this, the apostles and those in Jerusalem they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to Gentiles the rep- also the repentance that leads to life. I think these are two illustrations. At, at Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, which give us an idea of what Jesus means when he says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And they, those keys, of course, were not given only to Peter, ultimately. He was the first and the most prominent to exercise them. He was used of God to lead the apostles. And in the New Testament, we have the teaching and the writing of the apostles. And the apostles, along with Christ, give, by extension, command to church members to also exercise the keys to the kingdom. Two passages quickly. Matthew 18. We'll be looking at this in a few weeks or months. Very familiar passage, I suppose, to some. 
but much neglected, perhaps one of the most neglected passages and teaching sections from Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, gives instructions as for when a, someone who professes to be a believer sins openly. That person is to be gently corrected. You go to your brother, you, you try, you start out with, hey, you know, I, I've heard this or I witnessed this, I'm concerned. Uh, brother, can you tell me more? Am I understanding this right? And, and if there is sin there, you, you gently urge your brother or sister, you need to turn from that. And if they do, Jesus says, you have won your brother, verse 15. But, verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. It's a quote from the Old Covenant process of, of legal system. In other words, the church is not this flexible, hey, whoever shows up, welcome, you're in. Now, we welcome anyone who wants to come to our assemblies, to our times of worship for the most part. But we, we want men and women to come who maybe don't even profess faith in Christ so we can, we can share with them the good news. But when we talk about the church, and this is why we have church membership, is to clarify the boundaries, which is comprised only of those who are born again, place faith in Christ. We are to take seriously the confession of faith and whether it matches up with a life that honors Christ. And so if that person then refuses to listen, verse 17, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, remove them. Send them out the door of the church and do not open up the keys. Do not open the door with the keys until it's evident that that man or woman who professes faith in Christ turns from their sin. This is even more clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there with me. Verses 11 through 13. And, and this is so important for us to understand, especially in these days that we live in, especially even as we move to a new location which is more visible. We may likely have more people coming, and w- which is good. But it means that we're also likely going to have to exercise use of the keys a little more carefully. Especially in these days. When professing believers in Jesus Christ essentially think that you can live however you want and still be a Christian. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes there to the church. There's this pretty nasty situation in which a man, a, a man who professes to be a Christian... Oh yeah, I know Jesus. Oh yeah, Jesus is my Savior. A man who professes to be a Christian, a church member, is living and having immoral relations with his stepmother. Gross. But the type of thing that happens all the time in our society of various kinds. And what does Paul say? Well, you know, it's all about grace, so just pray that it'll work out. No, he does not. He teaches the church You have been delegated the keys to the kingdom by Christ. You are stewards of the gospel and of the purity of the church. And the church in Corinth at that point is just letting the guy stay in the church. Just letting it go on. Just saying, well, you know, what do we do? 
And what happens when that happens again and again and again? Do you understand what happens to a local church like ours? No matter how solid you start out, no matter how good your doctrinal statement is, if you don't take care in this area and more and more professing believers who live a godless, Christless, flagrantly blatant, sinful life, you extinguish the gospel light of that church and you make it worse You make it a stink and you add to people's reasons for not trusting in Christ because you then really have a hypocritical church. It's it's so crucial. Paul says, he says, verse 9, I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world. In other words, Jesus came to save real sinners, not theoretical ones. And, And so as I've said before, I mean, uh, murderers, thieves, homosexuals, uh, all kinds of sinners, liars, hypocrites. We, we welcome them to come in and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the kind of people that Christ came to save. Drunkards, drug addicts, right? That's not how you come into the kingdom is by being certain moral. That's not the entrance. So as long as they're not professing faith in Christ... We're glad you're here. Welcome. However, when I say welcome, I mean welcome to the assembly. But when someone professes faith in Jesus Christ, for example, and is living in a homosexual relationship, this is, I'm I'm giving real examples here, wants to be baptized and yet not leave that homosexual relationship, wants to be baptized and brought into the church, church must say no first you're not being baptized because you're professing that jesus christ is lord and by your behavior you're communicating the exact opposite and secondly even if you were admitted into the church we'd have to remove you the first same day why because here in first corinthians 5 paul says verse 11 i actually wrote to you not to associate and here's the key here's the key any so-called brother, this man or woman who's professing to be a Christian with their mouth. Do not associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13, remove. Remove. The church has boundaries, it has walls, it has definitions. There's one door faith in Jesus Christ. It's owned by one master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's one will that rules in his house and in his kingdom, and it is the will of Jesus Christ, no one else. This is such a sobering responsibility, but it is so critical for us to exercise use of the keys wisely. The church must be careful and how it exercises use of the keys. Let me ask you this question. How how effective do you think a church is where among its membership, those professing faith in Jesus Christ, you have a man living with a woman outside the covenant of marriage coming to church every Sunday where you have a man who 
everyone knows loves pornography, has lived with it for years, and apparently has no intent of breaking with it, but yet professes Christ and is a member. Where there are those members who are known to be mean and nasty and yell at their wife and at their children, scream at them. Where there are deacons who are known to be not trustworthy, and in fact, one of them has been found stealing in the context of the church on one occasion. I'm just giving you a little example, a sample. Now let me ask you that. And that's not a theoretical church. I want to ask you, how effective will that church be in A, pleasing God, and B, being a witness of the gospel to the, the culture around it? You see? And you wonder why the next generation of kids that grew up in that gross, hypocritical context, when they get to a certain age, they say, I'm out of here. There's nothing real or true about this. I'm gone. Do you see? Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom as a delegation of authority. And what we bind and what we loose communicates to others a message of what is pleasing to God and what is displeasing to God. That is our responsibility, not just Peter's, not just the apostles, but that is our responsibility. We have had to tell certain individuals over the years, I have leadership, it's heartbreaking when you have to go through the process of church discipline, but we should just expect in the culture we in, we are in that this is going to become just more common because people are really confused. And it's our job to define what the scriptures say about entrance into the kingdom. But we have had to say to certain individuals uh, uh, many years ago, a man who professed to be a believer in Jesus Christ comes to every, well, not every, off and on, but pretty regularly to the worship services. You know, sings songs, wants to play in the praise team, that kind of thing, right? He's been divorced from his um, wife, ex-wife, and she's also a professing believer. They have children together. They're divorced now. And divorce, by the way, is not the unpardonable sin. There's, that's another... Um, it's not my... It's not, listen to the details. He's professing faith in Christ because of his behavior in his life, was divorced from this woman who also professes to be a believer. They have children together. They have concluded that this arrangement, they don't live together, but they're divorced. They're both professing believers, professing that it's God's been reconciled to them through the gospel. They're both believers. They have children together of elementary school age. They want to come to church as a family. And I will tell you, what this does not go over so well. I told the gentleman, um, this, no. No, because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and if she's a believer in Jesus Christ, there is nothing. If you're both professing faith in Christ, there is no reason for you not to be reconciled. And in that case, there was no reason for them not to be reconciled. 
And what they were basically putting forward was this is another alternative relationship for a family. No. Not in Christ's house. It's his house. It's his rules. He calls us to be faithful to the covenant of marriage. You know, and, and it, I don't know if that is a helpful illustration, but it just you have all kinds of situations in which men and women in their pride are asserting that I do not have to bow to the king's will here. And we have to clarify, no, this is his house. So in closing, what, what do we do with this? Three simple main truths I want to impress upon you. Number one, the church is the Lord's church. The church is the Lord's church. If it is a church, it's his church. If over time, because we don't want to offend people or we want to please people or we're afraid of offending someone, that church will be disowned by the Lord. And it may have Christ on the title and the name, but it will not be his church. The true church is the Lord's church. His will be done. Secondly, there's only one way into the church. There's only one way of admittance. Only one door. Only one way. And that is faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way. Doesn't matter how long you attend. Doesn't matter how long you stick around. Doesn't matter what you do for the church. Doesn't matter how much you give to the church. I'm not saying any of those things are irrelevant. They just don't have any relevance relevance to admittance to the church. There is only one way and only one way of admittance, and it is repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly and finally, by way of application, well, if the church is the Lord's church, if there's only one way, and if we, who are true believers and comprise the current visible church, by God's grace, if we are given the stewardship as we are by Jesus in Matthew 18 for admitting and rejecting, we are stewards. We are stewards. And it's not just the pastor, by the way. It's not just the elders and the deacons. It's the members. We are stewards. We determine who's, I mean, we, we determine by our use of the keys, as it were, whether this church will be a true expression of Christ's kingdom or whether it will be just another blot upon the land. May God help us to be stewards of the keys so that this church is preserved in loving gospel purity so that truly broken, humble sinners of any kind, every kind, even murderous wretches like Paul, the Apostle Paul, can come here and find the love and the grace and the forgiveness of sins that is found through faith in Jesus Christ. And may our love for Jesus as Lord be so strong and our stewardship so faithful that the hordes of proud, arrogant, hypocritical men and women
who want to somehow use the church and the name of Jesus Christ, may we be cause for them gnashing their teeth. May we be prepared to be misunderstood, scorned, called less than gracious, simply because we held to this one truth, that salvation and admittance to the Lord's house is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The humble sinner, in essence, we take the key, we welcome them with open arms as fellow sinners, astounded that we've been admitted. To the proud man or woman who wants to profess faith in Christ and carry on flagrantly, openly in their sin, we say, no, we're sorry. This is the Lord's house. You are not admitted here. And a church that has the courage and the fidelity and the faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, humbly to be good stewards, can expect that though we are hated in the world's eyes, maligned by many, that by his grace, he will build that church. He will set his favor and kindness upon that church. May God help us to be faithful. Let's pray. God, these are hard things to talk about in a sense because we, we all understand that we have no right in and of ourselves to be in your kingdom. We're very conscious that we ourselves are sinners and not just in the past, but that we continue to displease you in some ways. We pray that you'll help us to be humble, to confess our sins and sinfulness, but also to rejoice in the gospel. And we pray, O oh God, that just as we pray that you'll bring many to us who are humble and want to hear about how they can be saved, we earnestly pray that you'll keep far from us the proud and the arrogant. We pray, O oh God, that you'll protect this church, that you're, by your grace this will be your house, a living house, not full of perfect people, but men and women who have expressed faith in you and are increasingly seeking to repent and please you in all things. Help us, O oh God. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be firm. Help us to be discerning. All for your honor and your church we ask. Amen.